Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner titled Teachings of the Torah for Precarious Times. This conversation was recorded from a Zoom webinar. Erwin Keller, welcome to the learning community and the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Michael. Nice to be back. So great to have you back. It's nice to be looking in at Bolinas. You know, the quality of light is different in Bolinas. You have this sort of Vermeer sweet, you know, <laughs> uh, um, sideways grayish light that's very nice. That's always yes, Bolinas. Erwin, I asked if you would start us off with a song. Uh, yes. Uh, so this is a, a nigun, and nigun is a song without words, which is a Hasidic tradition to sing songs without words so that our hearts can lead. This particular nigun is by uh, Yoel Sykes, who's a young uh, songwriter and rabbinical student in Israel, part of the Navad Tehila community. Actually, he's in Colorado now. It goes like this. that's the whole thing. Yeah, 
That is so beautiful, everyone. Really transporting. My goodness. Hmm. Do you have a prayer for us in Hebrew that we could move into? Um, presuming that most of us are, most of us other than Ari and Maine are on the West Coast. Um, the prayer upon waking up goes like this. Modeh or moda ani lefanecha ruach chai v'kayam shehechazarta binishmati b'chemla rabba imunatecha which means I pour out my gratitude to you, Holy Spirit, for placing my soul back in me. You have such faith in me. Hmm. Let's just go into the silence for a moment. You dropped me into such a deep place, Erwin. It's um, hard to find words. <laughs> um, sort of traditions of of nigunim, this Hasidic tradition, and traditions of of chanting do that. There's a way in which songs, the way we understand songs, kind of raise us up, raise our energy. But there's another way in which chanting and wordless music settles us really grounds us into our bodies, grounds us laterally across space. Um, and, you know, what it does to my mood varies depending on the day and depending on the nigun, but I always feel very centered, ready to look at my mood and see where it brings me. Mm-hmm. Another tradition related to sort of chanting, sort of... Uh, sort of the newer traditions of Jewish chanting, mm-hmm. and also this nigun tradition is that when you end, you hold the silence. Yeah. That there's a lot, a lot of the magic happens in the silence that follows because the, the song and the, and the intention and the emotions that it raises are still reverberating. Your body is a resonating chamber. Absolutely. And it's all still reverberating. And so sometimes, and Ner Shalom will hold a silence for a long time after something mm. like that. Oh. So, speaking of uh, Ner Shalom, um, you are, according to your bio, uh, a spiritual leader, teacher, writer, music maker, and performer. You've served as spiritual leader of Congregation Ner Shalom in Sonoma, California, since 2008, and you are continuing your studies through the LF Rabbinic coordination program. Um, I've spent some time on your uh, website, which is extraordinary. Uh, it's six well. And um, 
you write, you'll see if you check out my blog, it's as well. You'll see that I'm driven to think and write about life, loss, family, hope, change, Torah, gender, sexuality, and the usefulness of an outsider's perspective. I like to invite active imagining and reimagining of the core stories of our tradition. I like to find the humor in the serious and to locate the serious in the humor. And I believe all of us who have felt like we didn't fit in have important lessons to teach Judaism and the world and that the world and Judaism will grow and change with us. Uh, I was just so moved this morning as I just looked at all the different ways your being has manifested in the world in the course of your lifetime. Um, so I'm just, I'm just very touched that we're talking. In your, in your blog, um, there was a, a starting point for us, I thought, where you talked about imagining ourselves in this time as being called to be a planet of priests, not a, a, you know, a people of priests, but a planet of priests. Could you say more what that means to you? Yeah, that, that, particular, uh, that particular reflection uh, that you read came some weeks ago, right at, and I have to say that um, during this time, um, that we're living through right now, it's very hard to even remember what, for me, what I was feeling a week ago, mm. let alone a month and a half ago or two months ago. But that piece happened right at the time that in the annual schedule of Torah reading in the Jewish world, you know, we read the, the five books of Moses over the course of a year, um, a chunk each week. And that was the moment when we were first we weren't yet locked down, but we were about to be. Uh, for Ner Shalom, it was the, I think it was the last time that we were actually together, shoulder to shoulder in chairs. And, um, but the, the pandemic was already happening and, and becoming local. And it was the week in the course of Torah reading that we began the book of Leviticus. And I, I have to say that a lot of people shudder when I say the book of Leviticus and, and certainly people in my circles who see the book of Leviticus as a, as a collection of prohibitions on people being themselves, mostly because of the man shall not lie with man, right? That has, um, that has spoiled Leviticus for queer people um, and those who love them. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, and is a shame. Um, it, it has, um, it has diminished God, um, by, by doing that. That is the book that, that verse has diminished God. But that said, um, the book as a whole is a really interesting exploration of how to maintain, uh, an, a spiritual ecosystem, um, because it's describing this, this kind of, uh, ecosystem in ancient Israel, where um, divinity had to be tended, and it had to be tended by constant reckoning, constant accountability, giving of yourself in the form of, uh, of animals and, uh, and produce for, for sacrifice, a constant assessment of, 
what are my commitments? What am I vowing? Am I maintaining my vow? And if I haven't maintained my vow, then what do I owe the collective? And what do I owe the spiritual collective? Um, it certainly contains pieces about actual disease and contagion. It uh, contains actual uh, laws about um, uh, right behavior, a lot of which we would all agree with, some of which we wouldn't, wouldn't agree with. But the overarching intent of the book is to find a way for a community together to hold um, the power of healing, hold the power of um, maintaining active engagement with the divine and bringing the divine into our lives. There's a place early in the book of Leviticus where it says, Kedoshim Tihiyu Ki Kadosh Ani. I don't remember exactly. Maybe Rinat can put that into the chat. Um, but uh, you shall be holy for I am holy. There's this idea that, that our holiness, whatever that is, goes in tandem with the holiness of the divine. Um, that, um, that neither can be holy without the other. That there's some kind of a partnership or some kind of imbuing or embodiment. Um, so the thing I love about cyclical Torah reading is that you can always read uh, any piece of Torah that the calendar gives you, you can read it in relationship with what you individually or you as a collective are experiencing. Um, and it was just a moment heading into this pandemic where I realized, you know, this is exactly what we are all being called to do right now. We're being called into this greater accountability an accountability about how we use our resources, about how we treat the earth, um, an accountability about how we failed and therefore what we owe, um, what we need to lift up, um, how we need to be imbued, imbue ourselves with a kind of holiness of care that we don't readily walk around with as a culture, um, how to be the divine in the world and not just uh, have the divine consigned to something we think about uh, on Friday nights or Sunday mornings or whenever we engage in whatever bit of uh, spiritual commitment we have. Mm. Oh, beautiful. You know, I continue to be um, in an altered space with you. Uh, I, I haven't quite had this experience in these um, Friday morning um, learning community conversations before that they've been beautiful conversations and with people I love. Um, but you've just kind of taken me into this deep space. So it's interesting to it's interesting to be here with you in this space. Um, what it brings up for me a little of my own biography. Um, my father, as you know, uh, was Jewish and my mother was Christian. And so it's such a, my father was quite well known Jewish writer and thinker and philosopher, Max Lerner. And um, so it, and my other two brothers, neither of them are particularly religiously or spiritually inclined. One became sort of Jewish by identity, the other became primarily Christian by identity. But I was called to hold both and to, um, 
It was so interesting because um, the Jews think of me as Christian and the Christians think of me as Jewish, you know. And uh, so, <laughs> and, and that, that joint Christian-Jewish identity, which many people share, is a particular, uh, particular place. My friend Paul Gorman, uh, who created the National Religious Partnership for the Environment, and uh, he had a, a Christian father and a Jewish mother, I think. Um, but his line for it was, no home, mm. no home. And so to find a home, I needed to embrace, uh, as you were just speaking of a, of a, of a planet of priests, uh, I needed to embrace a spirituality that was all-inclusive. Mm. And, uh, and when I, I sort of sometimes describe myself as a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi with Taoist influences, you know, that's not that that's a universal description, but those are the uh, those are the traditions that have truly opened to me. And in that context, I spent about five years um, after a trip to Israel uh, where a wonderful rabbi uh, handed me uh, uh, the Torah. And uh, I spent five years following the weekly cycle of readings and uh, re re reading the Torah five times over. Um, and then you know, have been equally immersed in, uh, in uh, Buddhist, Christian, Sufi uh, traditions. So I just wanted to say that, so that it's, it's resonating for me, kind of dropping me back into that. And I continue to go back to Torah, um, but um, I just wanted to say, you've dropped me into uh, a deep place. We live in an interesting time in that there's a kind of universalism that's available to us that hasn't mm -hmm. been available to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, somebody, uh, uh, Chuck, was saying how interesting it is that we have a tendency to identi identify each other first by our differences. Yes, and there's a question. In a, in a world where there's a certain kind of universalism, available to us because look here we all are on zoom and uh and we have an internet and we're able to communicate across differences in in lots of ways that we never have been able um what is the role of our particularity um because i feel like there is still a role for our particularity um you know reb zalman was a subscriber to sort of the school of deep ecumenism um, with a vision that sort of all our all of our uh, collective particularities are here for a reason that uh, that every group's wisdom uh, provides a certain kind of vitamin that's needed by by the by the whole by Gaia that we're all the organs of so we can hold at the same time this vision of being this one organism but also having a uh, a certain specificity of outlook or function or wisdom. Um, and yeah, and growing up in that, uh, at that intersection, Michael, you know, that it does put you in this place of potentially having access to a lot and potentially not feeling belonging to any of it. Um, and no, that's uh, right. That's right. 
I've had to create my own at-homeness from uh, uh, the rags and tatters of different traditions, you know, trying to bring it all together. And I could have picked one. I mean, I know I could have picked one. That's the way many people do it. Uh, But I was drawn to... um, and to finding to finding a home that I made with my own hands from uh, the the pieces of the traditions that spoke to me most deeply. My experience of you, Michael, is that your approach to text it feels Christian to me, mm-hmm. and your and your approach to people feels Jewish to me. No, uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's interesting because, um, as you may know. Um, in those traditions, um, the divine speaks to me in the voice of what I describe as the living Christ or the Christ energy. Um, But I understand the living Christ to be quite distinct from uh, the historical Jesus. And of course, Jesus had no plan to start a religion that would go to war with Judaism. Um, So, uh, so, and that, uh, you know, Richard Rohr, wonderful, I don't know if you know his work, but yeah. Sure. Uh, Rohr is very clear about this. Uh, you know, that the, that the he, he has a book or something where he, he says, Christ is another word for everything. Hmm. And uh, of course you in your blogs address this also, this question of uh, how we hold whatever we call God uh, in this period of time. And is God, in fact, another word for everything? And what are the implications of that? You talk about that. I do. Um, You know, I'm not a theologian, uh, even though I I enjoy listening to theological conversation. And I love thinking about God and the divine. And I resist... I resist trying to have <laughs> consistent theology because I think it's very hard to. I think our yearnings, our experience are very different from um, sort of the, the logical categories that our, our minds will create. So any, any idea that we, any idea of God that we put on paper immediately is invalid as soon as the, before the ink is dry. That said, um, you know, yeah, I love this idea of the living Christ. I think the, the, this idea of living, the living Christ is very connected to sort of the Jewish idea of Shekhinah, of Absolutely. God's indwelling presence, imminent with an A in the middle, present, presence. That is, you know, it's the God that you experience, not the God that you think about. You know, mm-hmm. the God that's in, in your hands, uh, in the deeds that you do, and in your heart, uh, in your mouth, in the words that you say. Um, that's the living Christ, and that's Shekhinah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is feminine. Which is feminine, and I, I know that in, in Christian mysticisms as well, that, that uh, mm-hmm. Christ stands for a divine feminine principle, which I find, mm-hmm. very, which I find very interesting and beautiful and, mm-hmm. in a, um, and beautifully, beautifully gender-fucky. Um, mm-hmm. um, although, I, you know, it's not my tradition, so I, I can't... Mm-hmm. I, I, Mm-hmm. I, I can't make too much of it, but I but I love that. I love mm-hmm. um, that the the male character of history mm-hmm. um, becomes the feminine principle of the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think, you know, look, I, you know, I have lots of conversation, you know, it's interesting once you move into a, once you start, once you're clergy, everyone has to come and apologize to you about their, uh, about their religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. I, I suspect it's not just among Jews, <laughs> although that's my experience. I don't have Christians apologizing to me for not believing in God, but I have Jews constantly telling me how much they don't believe in God. And and I listen to what they, you know, what they have to say, and um, and it's you know, and the and the God they're describing is a very, uh, you know, a very sort of childhood God that we all grew up with in popular culture. Um, that's uh, a God that needs to be dismissed, a God that needs to not be believed in, um, because it's a God that's uh, a limiting factor and an oppressive factor. Mm -hmm. So how do we open up to uh, some kind of some kind of uh, sense of, not belief in, but sense of the divinity that flows through everything. See ourselves, experience ourselves as part of that. So we open up to, uh, you know, we begin with an, the natural world around us, which is full of mystery beyond our understanding. The smallest speck of dust uh, that's on your computer screen right now is more complex than anything that you could work out on paper. Um, so how do we uh, experience all this complexity, all this beauty? I, I have to say that one of the things that, that helps me in my experience of the divine is just noticing my ability to notice beauty because I don't really see uh, uh, an adaptive benefit, an evolutionary benefit to gasping at a beautiful sunset. Um, so there's something, there's a certain kind of grace to that. There's a gift to that. I think there may be an evolutionary benefit to gasping at a beautiful sunset. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in many of the traditions, uh, beauty is uh, absolutely, it's one of the three graces, you know, in the, uh, the truth, beauty, uh, truth, love, beauty, whatever. Um, but it's, it's very core. And the way I understand the evolutionary benefit of, of beauty, well, first of all, uh, beauty evokes love, right? You look at a, at a, at a beautiful sunset and, you, and it, what does it evoke? It evokes love, no? And then? Well, so if beauty evokes love, uh, then, uh, and love in my cosmology, I don't want to call it a theology, is, is sort of the heart of the whole deal, right? That um, there's, um, you know, in other words, in, in uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the three, um, the three yogas of the Bhagavad Gita are... Uh, the yoga of love, uh, bhakti yoga, the yoga of wisdom, yana yoga, and the yoga of service, karma yoga. And I find those things resonating through all the traditions. Um, so to me, um, uh, beauty is what evokes love, which many of the traditions consider the greatest of that triad of uh, love, the work of the heart, the head, and the hands. So in any case, for me, that sense of uh, beauty uh, uh, 
is enormously powerful. Aurobindo has a beautiful line where he says, uh, the future, if there is to be a future, must wear a crown of feminine design. So it, to me, there's so I'm, I'm, great power to beauty. I'm with you on the yeah. power, and, yeah. which is actually kind of what, what I'm trying to express. Like, yeah. I, I'm with you on the enormity of it. Yeah. And uh, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm less clear about is on a, sort of a species, at a, a species evolutionary level, like why noticing it? Why experiencing beauty as so enormous? Uh, gives us an advantage, gives us an evolutionary advantage. In other words, I I'm experiencing it, it. I think yeah. it might. I think it might. Or on, the, on a collective level, on a mm-hmm. cultural level, um, it gives us a portal into experiencing the divine. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner. But I, th- I feel like it's something that's emergent, like... You know, there might be uh, whatever it was that made some of our uh, our hormones surge looking at something beautiful. Um, our sense of beauty in itself, our noticing beauty as a thing in and of itself is something emergent, is a byproduct, and is grace. You, you identified it immediately as one of the three graces. So, in, so what is grace? Grace is the thing that you get without cause. It's the, it's the uh, in both Jewish tradition and Christian tra- tradition, it's, it's the thing that you get without earning it. Like you don't have to work for it, it mm-hmm. arrives. The, the, that beautiful sunset stops you in your tracks. Um, I don't know how I arrived at beauty in the beginning, uh, f- five minutes ago. Um, no, but it's such a great subject. As uh, Kira just wrote, my Sufi tradition points to love, harmony, and beauty. And uh, Aaron Hilton wrote, it's across the board in all religious traditions. And I've actually mm-hmm. been thinking about it. Well, first of all, I often think about beauty, but I've been thinking about it specifically because when I look at nature, most of what I see is beauty. Um, when I look at what humans create, a lot of it is not beautiful. In other words, just architecture, cities, you know, all kinds of things are not beautiful. And so it seems to me that there's a way in which uh, the beauty of nature uh, uh, is a guidepost to us uh, for how to live in harmony with the creation. And that when we create ugliness, (laughs) which we so often do, it's a sign that we're off track beautiful yeah beautiful yeah the uh song of songs the book song Mm -hmm. of songs Mm -hmm. is was a dicey one and whether it would be included in the the canon in the biblical canon and the great advocate for it was rabbi akiva uh who was insistent that it it must be read as as allegory for our relationship with the divine and it's all how beautiful you are. It's mm-hmm. all how beautiful you are um, in both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, the divine looking at the, the lover looking at the beloved and, mm-hmm. and describing your beauty and the beloved looking at the lover and describing the beauty. And I, 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 I do think, so I do think that's one of our entry points into a sense of wonder and a sense of divinity flowing through everything. 
And the Song of Songs is there right next to Ecclesiastes, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you have these two extraordinary things, right? The Song of Song and Ecclesiastes, and they are right next to each other in, in the Torah. Is that correct? So uh, they're in the same section. I don't remember if they're right next yeah, to each other. Right, but right. they're two of the five. We have five books that we call the Migilot, the scrolls, and they're mm -hmm. two of the five scrolls. It, it, they're a real, that's a really interesting juxtaposition, Michael, because uh, Song of Songs is so much about fullness. Mm -hmm. And and Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, is so much uh, toying with, playing with the emptiness. And the two mm -hmm. of them together are really interesting tension, um, which brings us back to the all is God question. Is that if all is God, then what is the difference between everything being God and nothing is God? Like, what is the difference between God is everything and God doesn't exist? Right? And on a, a physical and mechanical level, it might make no difference at all. Mm -hmm. um, fullness and emptiness, complete fullness is a kind of emptiness. Um, and the difference has to do with something like intention or something. This is, I think you're referencing what I was writing a couple weeks ago about God being everything plus. Mm -hmm. Like we need, if we, if we want to have a sense of the divine being something other than just the collective of all, then we need God to be something beyond just everything. And it's unclear what, to me in this moment, and it might change over time, what that plus needs to be. Like God can be everything, but I also need God to hear my prayers. I don't need God to say yes to my prayers, but I need God to hear. Um, so there needs to be some kind of intention or care or compassion or openness to the experience of every created being. I know it looks on my face like I'm about to say something else, but I'm, I've gotten myself sort of lost in that thought. No, no, that's wonderful. Where to, where to, where to, bring, where to bring it back to. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think feeling the divine in everything is, um, is a path. It's a practice. Um, maybe starting from a starting point of beauty, seeing God in what's ugly and mechanical and artificially made, is a harder step, and it's there too, even if it's a, seeing the divine in a way that brings sadness and loss. And then in addition to that, feeling held um, as an added element to seeing the divine, feeling the divine in everything. I also feel like this, you know, on this question of is, is there a God, I think as... Um, as moderns, we've come to this conclusion that, that God has to be the outcome of an evaluation, the outcome of some sort of inquiry. And if the inquiry leads to a yes, then I will believe. And if the inquiry leads to, doesn't lead to a yes, then, then I won't. And I actually think that faith is a kind of practice. I don't think it's a, a conclusion to a logical inquiry.
if the world, the world is the world, the world that we live in is the world that we live in, whether it is suffused with the divine or whether it is an accident of physics. So the choice to see it as infused with the divine is a choice. It's a practice in the same way that I might choose to practice meditating every day um, uh, or to, you know, to do a movement practice every day. Today is a day that I'm going to experience the divine. I'm going to locate the divine in everything. That's, that's not a logical conclusion. No, that's, I get it. That's a, it's, a, it's a practice. It is a practice. Um, but for me, I mean, I love the wonderful line from William James who said, uh, if free will exists, my first choice is to believe in free will. <laughs> uh, and uh, for me, I agree with you that it's a choice, the way William James made a choice. But for me, it turns out to be a choice where I have no choice. In other words, my experience of the divine is so rooted in who I've turned out to be that I don't feel I have a choice about it. And I suspect the same is true for you. You know, that on the one hand, it's a practice, but can you really imagine living your life without that practice? I, it's be, there's always been a piece of it there. Uh, mm -hmm. so, um, so that's certainly true. And I think there are people that might be more oriented towards noticing that and experiencing it or acting on it or answering a call around it than others. Um, but it's also work. Mm. It's not just, you can't feel the inspiration all the time. You can't feel a call all the time. Mm. You know, I think we have these moments, of, these flashes of awe mm -hmm. that feels like maybe a touch of the divine or something big, something big, bigger than us. Sometimes it's chemically enhanced and sometimes it's enhanced by being in a beautiful place or in the arms of a beloved, who knows? Um, sometimes it's uh, enhanced and yet then it goes. Uh, Kira saying numinous moments. Yes, the luminous, numinous moments. So then what happens when it's gone? Um, you have to do the work. Um, and so the yeah. work is that you trudge forward and you look for the divine in all things, even when you're not quite feeling it, even when you get up feeling rattled or in pain um, or discouraged. As you know, I'm a student of Enneagram and archetypal psychology and quite a number of other archetypal psychologies. But for me, these different experiences of the numinous, the nine points in the Enneagram, which are called the nine faces of God or nine faces of the divine. And so I find that um, so much of how we each experience the divine reflects which of these nine faces of God or the divine mm -hmm. we're kind of born into. So for me, um, I, and I'm grateful for this in Enneagram 5, and I, um, I kind of naturally see the divine everywhere. Um, and I don't wake up 
discouraged and trudging very much. And Scott Fitzgerald has that lovely line about one of his characters who was born uh, two martinis down. And I think I was born one martini up, you know, it's just like kind of, an, I, I live in a natural high an awful lot of the time. But, but my particular high, which is not drug enhanced or hasn't been for the last 45 years or so, my particular high has to do with the choice between seeing the universe, as you said, just as an accident of physics, or seeing the universe as actually a, a, living, a living presence, that the, that the evidence to me is at least as strong that the universe is alive as it is that the universe is just inert and dead and we're an accident. And, you know, specifically that the anthropic principle that the universe appears completely designed to support life. It appears totally designed. That's the only way. And that drives the physicists mad because that suggests a purpose to the universe. So they invent the multiverse in order to get around how insane it seems to them that the universe was designed to support life. But there's no evidence for the multiverse. There's not a shred of evidence for it. I mean, you know, they can make it up, but they don't have any evidence for it. So the universe that we can see appears absolutely designed to support life. And yeah. what does that suggest? It suggests that the universe has intention. It has purpose, yeah. that there is a purpose to all of this. So for an Enneagram 5, who is born, you know, one martini up, um, I find evidence for that purpose everywhere. And what I see in humanity is that we have been given free choice and that the great task for us, if we are to survive, is to find that crown of feminine design that Aurobindo speaks of and to reimagine ourselves in this moment as, um, as returning to the creation as returning to that space, which of course is what the Jews were constantly called to. I think you and I are a little bit alike in this way. Uh, I think we're both born one drink up. Mm -hmm. um, a certain kind of hope is natural to me and just courses through my veins. Mm -hmm. And I hear you talk a lot and I feel mm -hmm. that in you too. Even though you're often talking about, you know, apocalyptic times of our absolutely of our society, of our civilization, of our technologies, mm -hmm. it's always with a course. Uh, it's always with an eye towards what arises then. What arises? Which is hope. Which is it. hope. I agree, and yeah. um, I, I, I do want to just say something though about uh, you know the being born two drinks down. Like we're living in a so we're living in this really interesting. Um, and frightening time right now. And um, where your mind goes and where your heart goes when you're kind of locked in your room for two months um, is, uh, is of note. And um, I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling like you know, one of the things we need to be doing right now is making space for like all the things that we're feeling, 
you know, you, you and I lean towards the lofty. You and I lean towards this, this uh, numinous experience. And there are so many days that so many of us during this get up and we're just sad. We are just filled with grief. We don't want to get out of bed or what's the, what's the point? We're just, we're just going to be on Zoom. What's the point of putting on pants? Um, and how do, we, how do we sit with that? How do we hold that on a spiritual level? Um, how do we locate God in, in the days that we feel like crap? And, um, and that's, a, that's a practice too, maybe. I don't know. I don't have, I don't have advice around it, but I want to see it. I want to, I want to identify that you don't have to, you know, ha- you don't have to, uh, uh, to have these, um, transcendent experiences to, um, to have a sense of the divine. You I know, completely in, agree with that. In, in, you know, one of our Jewish traditions about Shekhinah, right? Sort yeah. of Shekhinah, again, this sort of imminent presence of imminent experience of God, it arises out of, um, out of a mysticism of brokenness. Shekhinah arises out of uh, a, dis- a division between sort of the, the uh, expansive, transcendent creator God and what we experience, which is so not that so often. Um, our tradition goes that when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, that Shekhinah, God's the imminent um, presence, came with us into exile that Shekhinah cries with us. And there's something very beautiful about, you know, uh, how do we hold suffering, you know, in a theology? And a piece of it is, you know, this idea that God cries with us. Um, God's not, uh, like God's not fixing it in the ways that we're imagining fixing might look, but God's crying with us. So Shekhinah or, uh, so Shekhinah becomes God in exile so when we feel distant from the divine, we're still not distant from the divine. We're still held. Um, our days of not wanting to get out of bed, that's divine too. That's Shekhinah as well. Um, yeah. and, that's, and it might be hard to hold that, but that's, uh, it's also worth considering. I agree with that. Uh, and for me, I mean, first of all, what we're witnessing is unbelievable. A suffering around the world, uh, you know, unbelievable, and probably, in all likelihood, tens if not hundreds of millions of people are going to starve. You know, so it's it's just unbelievable what we're witnessing. So, if I were one of the people who was faced with that, or one of the billions of people who may not starve but just are suffering profoundly, I would be experiencing all of that suffering. But what I can tell you from my experience of suffering and from where I come from is that God is in the grief. In other words, that uh, there are two ways of holding suffering. Uh, One is that it has no redemptive qualities. And the other is that, uh, you know, it is when we are broken that the words of Torah actually fall into our heart, that they were written on our heart because uh, it is only when our heart breaks open that they fall in, if I remember the quotation correctly. Mm. So 
in my own life, I absolutely know that when I am suffering deeply, I feel closer to the divine. Now, but again, I don't have a personality of depression, and depression is a much harder place from which to access that. So there are many states of being where it's hard to access that, and of course, many belief systems that you just don't have a place like that to go because you believe that there is no meaning, you know, that the world is just what it is, you know, life is tough and then you die is a real philosophy for many people. And I don't, I don't privilege my own philosophy over any other philosophy. I don't think that my, it's just how I happen to see the world, but I don't privilege it over a, a, a philosophy of existential despair. And also our suffering is of a different register than the suffering of other people. That's absolutely true. No, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Renat points out that the, the work of healing circles, what's happening in healing circles, uh, is the experience of Shekhinah crying with us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is so beautiful. I get so caught up in what we're doing that I forget what I was expecting to ask you about. But I, I want to ask you a very specific thing. Uh, first of all, to acknowledge that you are uh, married to uh, Oren Slosberg, who is the executive director of Commonweal, and that's how we came to meet. Um, so this whole th- session is nepotistic. Right. And also that, uh, if memory serves, that the two of you met when you were studying Aramaic, is that right? Uh, Aramaic had a role. Uh, We met at a Passover Seder. Oh, okay. And uh, which contains elements in Aramaic. And and so Oren um, made a little point of pronouncing his Aramaic in an academic way that I would notice. And, uh, <laughs> and we we touched in afterwards, and it turned out we had both studied linguistics, and we were both interested. We had both studied Semitic linguistics, and we were both interested in doing dissertations on the same dialect of modern uh, of Neo Aramaic, spoken Neo Aramaic. Neither of us ended up doing that work, although Oren's brother ended up marrying a man who came from an Aramaic speaking family. So uh, it continued. So um, the culture of the spoken Ar- Jewish Aramaic of uh, Kurdistan continues to be part of our life, um, even if it didn't end up being an academic pursuit. So I wanted to ask you something I'm simply ignorant about, didn't have time to look up. Uh, did Aramaic precede Hebrew as a language or were they co- co- co-terminus in their beginnings? Yeah, I think, I've, I, I think they certainly existed simultaneously. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think either derives exactly from the, oh, I'm, or, yeah, they don't, uh, yeah, people kind of want to see, they want one of these to be the origin for the other. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're both developments out of Northwest, some, some kind of proto-Northwest Semitic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, and, um, and truthfully, it, you know, Torah is written in Hebrew, but by the time Torah was sort of ink on parchment, the, the Jewish people were not Hebrew speaking anymore. So by the, that, by the time we have in the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, the description of the first public reading of Torah 
to the Jews in Jerusalem, there are translators standing there described. There are translators um, putting it over into Aramaic for the people. Mm. So they didn't speak Hebrew anymore at that point. By that point, they weren't uh, they weren't Hebrew speakers anymore. So, did spoken Hebrew have to be reinvented several times? <laughs> well, okay. So then there we have sort of a, a, a Zionist mythos around the yeah. the resurrection of Hebrew uh, uh, of a dead language. And the truth mm-hmm. is that uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda and the other people who were involved in the project of making uh, Hebrew a secular spoken language. Um, they weren't starting from scratch and they weren't starting from biblical language. Uh, Hebrew continued to be a spoken language among, uh, among the rabbis, among people doing rabbinic work. So um, even in the, the, in the Hasidic world of the 18th century and 19th century, the rabbis are speaking to each other in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew that's influenced by, their Hebrew is influenced by their Yiddish um, uh, Hebrews being used by rabbis in the Middle East um, and North Africa. So it's, it's always been in use. It's just never been anyone's, it wasn't anyone's first language, wasn't anyone's uh, vernacular. Mm. So coming back to the moment that we find ourselves in, uh, in your uh, Ner Shalom community, um, which is extraordinarily diverse, I understand. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. Um, in your Ner Shalom community, how, how is your community holding this period of time? And how do you find yourself both holding it for yourself and being with your community in the diverse ways that people are holding it? One of the things I'm noticing is the incredible strength that people have. I don't feel like I have to do a lot of holding. I mean, I'm trying to hold a container in which people can dip um, for spiritual sustenance and for emotional support. So I feel like I'm holding a container, but I don't feel like I'm doing the work of helping people manage. you know, I, I think that we all have a great deal of strength. Um, I think we're all remembering what it's like to be support for each other one-on-one. Um, I think we're all remembering what it's like to have more quiet time and how that can make us strong. Um, we're all ending up doing value, very subtly doing values clarifications all the time. Um, and so I feel like people are going through their process of grief and fear and possibility and comfort. Um, and individuals are doing that in their, in their own way. And so for me, uh, what I, you know, I only lightly have to hold, uh, an overall container that people can dip into. Mm-hmm. In the days of Maimonides, if I remember correctly, I mean, that was a period of time. You know, one of the things about the horror that is upon us now is that in the communities that you and I live in, um, the horror is mostly not 
experienced firsthand as much as it is witnessed around us and certainly globally. And it seems to me that in the time of Maimonides, for example, um, the horror was right there. And if I remember correctly, Maimonides said that it was not permitted to count the days to the coming of the Messiah. And so I wanted to ask you how you hold uh, the teaching of the coming of the Messiah and how you imagine that to be a prophecy that is relevant to our time. Oh, there's a, a curveball, Michael, a little messianism in the morning. Mm. Um, yeah, Maimonides was, wasn't the originator of that. Talmud talks about it. Talmud oh, really? it. The count. Talmud does all of this counting of the days. It does all of this calculation about, uh, and that the sort of the messianic era is time limited as well. It's not like there will be an eternal messianic era. It will last for 3,000 years and then the world will end. The world has an expiration date itself. Creation has an expiration date. Um, and then Talmud goes on to say, it's not permitted to do this counting. Um, so it's so Talmud itself is holding this intention, uh, holding sorry, holding this tension that we yearn. You know, our messianism is uh, is a projection of our yearning uh, of our yearning of a life without suffering. And Talmud also holds uh, the tension of that with, and if you decide when it's coming, you're going to be disappointed. Um, it has to remain in the in the realm of imagination and in the realm of yearning, um, and we have to work with it on that level. These are our ingredients for moving through life in the present day. Um, how do we act out of our yearning, and how do we act out of our imagining something something better in the present moment? Um, so, in some ways, an idea of a messianic world isn't about how do we get there. It's about how do we take that imagining and draw it into the present moment and put it into effect now? Um, how do we, so if we imagine a world in which we're not all using fossil fuels in this way, so, um, so we start doing it now, even if we're doing it in a small way. This is a teaching from Rabbi Arthur Wasco, right? Who talks about, who's a wonderful sage and prophet and, uh, and climate activist. But one of the things he talks about is, for instance, what is it that made the, uh, the um, drugstore counter, the protests at the drugstore counters in the South, different from a picket line? The difference is that the picket line is one level of abstraction. It's about an idea. Whereas um, Black people sitting at the counter at the, at the Woolworth um, is enacting the world that we want in the present moment. That is what made it so powerful and so threatening. So um, if we take that as an example, then how do we envision a world and start putting elements of it into effect now? So I would say in, in, in some way, you know, so I don't, yeah, I don't subscribe to a school of a Messiah coming in the form of a person. And even uh, the idea that we will someday achieve a more perfect world, I find that hard to hold. And, uh, and I confess that 
we have put a lot of pressure on this moment that we're in right now to be transformative globally. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner. Like, you know, and I think it's because those of us who want a better world so desperately, and we imagine it all the time, this has become a moment to say, ah, now this is the moment where everything will change. And then we have the fear that nothing will change. Um, and I think there are so many lessons to come out of this time. But I also think we need to be modest in our expectations of what this time will produce. The, our species can't change overnight and our culture can't change overnight. And this is overnight. Even if this, this crisis lasts for a year, it's overnight. But we can draw lessons from it that we can start putting into effect right away. And so I think this is how I hold this is how I hold messianism, not as some kind of well, so long-term secular change, but as, as a kind of yearning and visioning for the present moment. That's so helpful to me. So I, I, I'm learning so much about your way of being and reflecting. Um, and I didn't know that, uh, that messianism as interpreted in Talmud was not a world that they actually expected to come, but rather they said, if you, if you expect it, you will be disappointed. And, and this is our yearning that needs to be brought into the present. So it seems to me that buried in that observation of yours is something very important, which I struggle with a lot, which is how do we hold authentic hope for the future, given as you suggested, and I share this view, that we're not going to create a perfect world. Uh, how do we hold authentic hope for uh, the future of humanity and the natural world that we care about? Uh, you know that I've been immersed in the study of whatever you want to call the global problematic or the global challenge and several dozen global stressors and how biodiversity itself is at a bottleneck and only part of it will come through the bottleneck and God knows what form of humanity will come through the bottleneck. So those of us who are deeply engaged in that, in that inquiry really wonder about how we hold hope and what we say to our children. And, uh, you know, the view of some of us is, uh, that humanity can only stand a little bit of reality. And we're really like the people living in the shadows in Plato's cave. And we really just can't come into the direct light uh, because we can't hold that much reality. So some people go to the place of, uh, well, we need to make up hope stories for people because there's people can't stand the reality. So I'm just curious for you, uh, is there in what you've said about taking our yearning into ourselves a way of grounding ourselves in authentic hope for what we can honestly say to our children and honestly say to each other about where hope resides? Mm. 
I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I almost invariably feel hope, almost as if it's a sense, one of my senses, I have a sense of hope, like I have a sense of smell and a sense of taste. It exists despite evidence to the contrary, despite disappointments, my sense of hope exists. Um, and I don't think it's meaningless. Um, I think we, you know, um, someone in the chat is asking, Sandra's asking about, um, can change happen? Can change happen in the blink of an eye? Isn't it possible uh, on a global level? Um, and that's a teaching from Carolyn, uh, Carolyn Meese. Carolyn Miss, yeah. Miss, um, as an extrapolation from what we see in individual cases. For me, it's enough for it to be in individual cases. You know, I would love for it to happen on a global level. I feel like as long as we're living in a sort of a, a realm of global cap capitalism, it can't happen on a global level until people are willing to give up um, their willingness to earn money off of the world. Um, but if it can happen in the blink of an eye on an individual level, among enough people, then it will impact the world. Um, and I, so, so I guess I just, in saying that, enacted my own hope. <laughs> like that's the form my hope takes. Mm. It's like I can get so discouraged about the ability of the world to change. And then I can have such hope about the ability of individuals to do beautiful things and to tend this garden and to care for each other that it fills me again with hope. Um, and I don't think that's hope. I don't think that's hope misplaced. I think that's, if this world is going to change, that is the way it's going to change. Individual by individual, um, enacting this beautiful kind of care and tending. Um, a lot of which we've gotten a chance to witness over these past few months that we often don't get to witness. And, um, and I have a hope around that too that that will be a thing that people will remember. There's so many directions we could take this. I, I want to say I share your hope. Uh, you know, the, the quote that I use so often is Václav Havel's distinction between optimism and hope, and optimism being the belief that everything will go right, and hope being a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. And And I... You know, as you know, I, I go deep into uh, deep sadness about the direction of uh, uh, humanity and, and uh, the creation on earth. But somehow I hold a hope that feels as rooted in me as my belief in the divinity of the universe. Um, in fact, I do have a way of, of holding it that is germane here, which is simply that if the universe is if the universe is everything plus, as you put it, that plus for me is that it has meaning, that it has purpose. That's why I talked about the universe as, as potentially living, and even if it isn't living, it has purpose. You know, but I like to think of it as living. And so if it has purpose, and if everything in the universe happens according to 
exquisite mathematically formulated um, you know uh, forces then the most beautiful way to live in many ways is to align ourselves with those forces mm-hmm. you know and yeah. so if we are aligned with those forces then I have deep hope because I am seeking to align myself and to the degree that I can communities and so on you look as though you're moved to uh, play something here. Yeah, I'm feeling like we need to... Yeah, let's do uh, that. We, we need to sort of um, integrate some of this. Yeah, good. Uh, let's with do some that. music. Um, because you were talking before about brokenheartedness. And I'm yeah. thinking about uh, Psalm 147 that uh, talks about God as the healer of the brokenhearted. And um, the counter of the stars. And there's something about this passage that uh, locates healing in being witnessed, which I know is also, right, this is the underpinning of healing circles practice, but it's also something about our hope. Like what is it that makes hope possible in times of great grief is also this sense of being witnessed. Um, So I'd like to share this setting um, from Psalm 147, and this is written by my... uh, friend, uh, Rabbi Shir Yaakov Feit, uh, who's up in um, the Hudson Valley in New York. It's in Hebrew and then it will be in English, so don't despair. Um <sighs> Umchabesh le arts No name is pa la kohavi. Le hulam shemotika. Hallelujah. 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 Healer of the broken Binder of our wounds, counter of uncountable stars. You know who we are. 
healer of the broken hearted. Binder of our wounds. Counter of uncountable stars. You know who we are. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. or so of our conversation. Um, where would you like to go? What have we not talked about that you hoped we would talk about or that simply comes to you in this moment? Um, I think, uh, I don't know. I've been sitting with a new appreciation or a renewed appreciation of seasons and of holy time. Hmm. Um, there's been, we've all been thrust in such a, into such a shapelessness of time hmm. in these past months in a way that we haven't as a, as individuals or as a collective of days that all look so similar. Um, our days were so demarcated by work, by the way we work, by where we drive to, by the offerings that are available to us, the entertainments. And here every day is our own creation and our own breath. And so I'm really appreciative of 
uh, of Shabbat, of the Sabbath, noticing it in a way that I sometimes don't. My whole week is, a, I mean, this is also, this has to do with me and my work, right? That, that I lead worship on Shabbat and I give over some kind of teaching on Shabbat. But for me, it means that the whole week is a trajectory towards it, towards Friday night, towards sunset on Friday night. And then the world glistens for me. Um, and it gives the week direction. And we have a holiday next week, a holiday of revelation of the giving of Torah, uh, Shavuot, which is sort of, which is, uh, you know, Pentecost is the equivalent of that, right? Uh, and it's also the wisdom giving holiday in the Christian, Christian, tr Christian tradition, I, I believe. Um, and so having these annual cycles too, and noticing them, notice, noticing them as in as lively a way as we notice the changing seasons. I'm finding that really helps me. Um, I was also noticing uh, over the past couple of weeks, the, uh, the text which came up in Torah, in Torah reading about the sabbatical and the Jubilee, <laughs> the, Shab the Shemitah and the Yovel, and anyone who's part of my congregation has heard me talking about this, but uh, this commandment that every seven years you let your field go fallow and uh, you can eat what grows on it, but it's whatever grows on it by itself is for everybody. It's not for your profit. And you let whatever, um, whatever fruit, you let it fruit without your constant tinkering and tending. And there's something in this moment of that for us, of who am I when I'm not tinkering and tending? Um, I have a lot of congregants who talk to me about trying to remember who I am. I'm trying to remember who I am and all the things that I do and people really defining themselves about by their accomplishments and feeling like when they're not accomplishing, when they're not, being, when they're not producing in some way, then they're not themselves. It's not me, I'm just sitting around and I, I don't, I'm not me. I don't feel like me. And so there's, I feel like we're also getting an invitation to notice who we are in repose, who we are at rest. Um, because that's us too and the divine is flowing through us at rest as well as when we're producing and when we're being poets and artists and activists. And I feel like we're getting a call right now to hold all of it, to notice ourselves in the quiet as well as in the noise of our speech and our rabble rousing and our productivity. So I guess those are sort of the last things that are floating around for me in this moment, things that I'm holding right now. You know, when I was reflecting and preparing for this conversation and I, I looked back at your biography and your description of the deeply musical family you grew up uh, grew up in and um, and becoming the lawyer who wrote the first gay rights uh, legislation for Chicago and then um, becoming a singer in the Kinsey Six, which I encourage people to um, check out. 
Uh, there's but one particular song that you do called uh, We Arm the World that uh, you have a starring role in that <laughs> I particularly love. Maybe Sophie or Kira can put that link in yeah, the chat. Yeah, that would be lovely. Um, and then uh, retiring from uh, what somebody called it, what the the Royal Shakespeare, uh, <laughs> the, Royal Sh the Royal Shakespeare Sh Company of drag performance. <laughs> yes, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Of, but I mean, you were world famous uh, um, and, you know, toured all over. How long did you do that for? 21 years. 21 years. Yeah. So this was a major chapter in your life. And it's, it's really extraordinary. Um, you once said to me that you joined, you joined that group because you thought that you could do more uh, for gay rights than as a lawyer. Yeah, at the time that we founded the group, uh, we were all, uh, two of us were lawyers in the HIV world, in the yeah. HIV advocacy world. Yeah. Uh, and we were noticing the strictures on us by having to be sort of suited and tied, right. um, and tied in every possible sense. Right. Yeah, right. And, uh, and we had to be good role models and look clean cut in order to do our advocacy, in order to try mm -hmm. to affect change in that way. And, and it was really frustrating, um, uh, this idea that we had to block out so much of ourselves in order to be presentable. And so um, this was a real release for us. And, and the queer community at the time that was our first audience in San Francisco was equally relieved um, that we could just, we could say what we were feeling and observing. And even if we didn't know whether or not we were achieving any kind of change through our music, through our performance, through our drag, we felt like we were keeping the troops fed and cared for. And that was a piece of the, that was a piece of the work that we weren't getting to do was that kind of feeding of the soul. And so what came to me as I thought about, you know, this extraordinary life career from a uh, musician, you thought you'd be a musician and then became a lawyer and then actually did become a musician for 21 years and then ended that and became the spiritual leader of Ner Shalom and created a, a Jewish uh, congregation community that is, as inclusive as one can imagine any community being. Uh, and then continuing that with your current rabbinic studies. Um, and what came to me was that the particular courage, I don't know if courage is the word, but I see it as courage. Uh, Hemingway once said, courage is grace under pressure. I like that. <laughs> but um, the particular courage it takes to live out so many radically different dimensions of yourself in one lifetime. And I thought to myself that one of the things that the gay community gives us is because it was so excluded for so long, uh, as Jews have been excluded, as many peoples around the world have been excluded in different ways, people of color, every other exclusion, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, that 
the gay community had to be able to code switch and live in these very different worlds. And then what you've done is taken your code switching and made it public. You know, you made all the pieces public. And I thought to myself, how hard it is in the straight world to do the same thing. In other words, in the straight world, you know, I have to be who I seem to be in, you know, uh, at Commonweal and in the world. And so there are all these other pieces of me that really, you know, are much more difficult to, you know, the, the pieces that um, are rejected by the, you know, standard version of reality uh, that um, I have to hold in different ways, but not as you've been able to hold them, you know? I think, uh, I think for, you know, there's certain, huh, um, there's a kind of risk taking that people in traditionally oppressed communities uh, get in the habit of having to take. Yes. Um, and that some people um, who are not in those communities just have to, um, uh, have to learn to take or take mm -hmm. the risk to take. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do think, yeah, there's, you know, it, in lots of cases, people growing up in, you know, growing up queer, or growing up in marginalized communities, you know, you have a practice. Sometimes it's within your community. If you grow up queer, at least in my generation before the internet, you were alone. Um, but but still, there's a practice of finding your own value, um, and that doesn't always work. You know, suicide rates among queer youth is, are still phenomenally high. Um, so it doesn't go without saying. Um, and I really lucked out. You know, I had parents <laughs> who were who were delighted at everything I did as a kid. And I grew up, I am so lucky and blessed to have grown up in an environment where I felt like anything I do is going to be well-received. And so I moved through life that way, just presuming that anything I do will be well-received. And I know that that is not everyone's experience by, by a long shot. Um, yes, um, I also grew up being loved, and what an extraordinary gift it is to be loved. You know, sometimes I can be the only person in a room with a happy childhood. You know, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's the greatest gift, the gift of love, uh, which is of course what God is all about, and yeah. as we understand it. Yeah. Any last thoughts? How about a last song? Oh, I'd love that. Because this is one, this is a, this is a song uh, that I learned at the Commonweal Fall Gathering. Uh, a participant named Katina taught this to me. Um, and it's by Miranda Rondeau, who's a Native American drummer and musician. And uh, I think she's in Southern California. I don't recall exactly. But um, I brought this back to Ner Shalom and to my rabbinic uh, school community where it's been getting lots of, lots of use and you'll, you'll see why. Mm -hmm. um, but this is um, um, my, my prayer is that this, the sentiment of this song is one that um, we can carry with us in this time of grief and flux and that'll give us that strength um, 
you know, for all of us to feel like you and I feel, Michael, with mm-hmm. our happy childhoods, um, feeling like um, we are protected and we are loved and we emanate light. Love surrounds you, peace surrounds you, angels surround you every day, all day long. Morning, noon, and night, you are surrounded by the light. Love surrounds you, peace surrounds you, angels surround you every day, all day long. Morning, noon, and night, you are surrounded by the light. You are surrounded by the light, the light of God, the light of peace, the light of love. You are surrounded by the light, the light of God, the light of peace, the light of love. Love surrounds you, peace surrounds you, angels surround every day, all day long. Morning, noon, and night, you are surrounded by the light. Love surrounds you, peace surrounds you, angels surround you every day, all day long. Morning, noon, and night, you are surrounded by the light. You are surrounded by the light, the light of God, the light of peace, the light of love. You are surrounded by the light, the light of God, the light of peace, the light of love. Love surrounds you, peace surrounds you, angels surround you every day, all day long. Morning, noon, and night, you are surrounded by the light. A sense of benign presence near you. A sense of what presence? You were looking off screen as if a beloved friend was nearby, and I was hoping he might join us. <laughs> Oren Slosberg, for those who do not know you, the executive director of Commonweal, joining Erwin Keller, spiritual director of Ner Shalom. What a blessing. Thank you for this time, Michael. I'm so glad you invited me to do this. Well, it was extraordinary for me, um, and I, I cannot thank you enough. Um, and it, it really, um, 
it helps me in a most fundamental quest that I'm in, which is to understand hope in this time. Mm. And you've just given me some reflections, perhaps the strongest of which is just the power of music and hope, you know, power of just uh, your deeply grounded um, hmm. Hmm. You're deeply grounded not only in music, but in uh, in the in you know, the I, deepest I Jewish tradition. I can't know. stay in my head too long because it spirals yeah. into despair pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. music is a music is a way to yeah. assimilate and check in with the body. Yeah. That like the things that have been going on in my head, like how much yeah. of that is right and how much of that is. Yeah. Is fluff. Yeah. I can Oren speak to us. Welcome, Oren. Thank you. Thank you for holding this conversation. Ah, it was just lovely. Just lovely. Well, what a blessing. Well, may the Sabbath be a beautiful one for both of you. And um Erwin, thank you so much for doing this. You uh, too, Michael, and for yeah. everyone on this call. May we yeah. have beautiful rhythm in time that keeps yeah. giving us strength and holds us no matter where we're at. Mm -hmm. And Oren, thank you for your leadership of Commonweal and for the infinite blessing of your vision of intergenerational leadership that enables an old man to continue to work in useful ways <laughs> as uh, you lead us into uh, the next uh, period of time. I feel so blessed by your friendship and your partnership. It's an honor. And, yeah, so love to you all and love to all those who will hear this uh, after we've recorded it. Um, I think it will touch the hearts and souls of many people. So be blessed. Shabbat Take care. Shalom. Bye. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.